I'm Vincent Williams. I'm Len Webb. And we're your hosts of The Michelle Mission. Two men, one podcast, every Black film ever made. This is our podcast documentary, The Class of 1989. 1989 was an important year in film when Hollywood would change forever thanks to six films about race. Some are obvious, like Do the Right Thing, Harlem Nights, and Glory. A few might surprise you, like A Dry White Season, Lean on Me, and Driving Miss Daisy. Join us as we explore what happened and what changed because of the class of 1989. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my privilege and honor to officially introduce for the first time graduating class. There's only one boss in this place, and that's me, the HNIC. Much a matter what happens tomorrow, I'm going to blow your pinky toe. Oh, now you're going to shoot me in my pinky toe. Lord knows. I tell you the story. Right hand, left hand. Good and evil. Hate, love. These five things, they go straight to the soul of man. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mike Tyson. Mike Tyson ain't. I remember when he mugged that woman right there on Lexington. Remember that? Shit? And you were gonna tell him that? I tell him that I ain't for Mike Tyson. That's to his face. That's you goddamn right. I ain't scared of goddamn Mike Tyson. You attack that shit. I drop him like a bad habit. Yeah, that's Yeah, boy. And Mike Tyson dream about whoop my ass. He better wake up and apologize. The very charismatic and foul-mouthed Robin Harris. God rest his soul. And he had fewer lines, but just as much presence in Harlem Nights. Two films directed by two black men from Brooklyn in a decade that didn't have many black directors with box office hits. In this episode, we're going to compare the visions of rising star Spike Lee and first time director with all the Hollywood clout, Eddie Murphy. Let's set the tone. Where is Eddie Murphy? in 1989. Comedian Daryl Charles has something to say about that. There's this great book called Laughing Mad by um, Bambi Haggins. She writes about the era of black comedy starting from like Dick Gregory and Bill Cosby Mm -hmm. on. And she has a wonderful chapter about Eddie Murphy and about the place that he was in the history and i can't i will not do it justice please go get the book it's it's fantastic but i think she brings up coming to america as a prime example there's so many things he had to hit it was like 
you talk about race, but you do it by proxy. It's a fish out of water thing. It's uh, here's some black culture stuff. Like he had to hit all of these notes. Mm -hmm. And I think he tried it again with Harlem Nights and maybe it was the period piece part. I don't know why it didn't like get a bunch of people behind it but you know for all i know maybe it did and it just they just didn't put it on the news i don't know <laughs> maybe dan rabbit was just like nah and i think josiah howard subtly sums up who spike lee is in comparison to all the black films that came before um there's a lot of the black exploitation in it yeah i think it's a uh if i dare say it above and beyond black exploitation because it's um more thoughtful mm-hmm political and uh, certainly better done on a larger budget. Um, so all of that makes for a different viewing experience. And uh, he was just gifted with being able to do everything better. Spike Lee had already made a name for himself with his debut feature film, She's Gotta Have It in 1986, and his musical follow-up, School Dates in 1988. But in 1989, he was ready to show that he was down for the right cause by doing the right thing. As he expressed in this interview with the American Film Institute in 2020. At that time, the late 80s, it was not the most pleasant as far as race relations go. I had the title before I had anything. I didn't know what the subject matter was gonna be. But I knew the film would be called Do the Right Thing. What I like about the title is that everyone has their own interpretation of what is the right thing? Not only in the audience, but the characters in the film too. I would love to go to theaters all across the country and watch the film, sit in the back, hat down, and then stand out in the lobby and listen to the debates and the arguments and these exchanges. I mean, people, the ushers will be mad because people were, were not leaving and they had to bring in the next show. And that was really what we wanted to try to do with that film, to really spark discussion, exchange of ideals, debate about race. Yes, I like that. Because without a doubt, Spike is a better filmmaker than Eddie Murphy in 1989. These two men had totally different budgets, but they also had two totally different missions and uses of comedy. Again, comedian Daryl Charles. You know what was beautiful about Do the Right Thing? They let Robin Harris just be Robin Harris. Spike let him, he was like, yo, just bust on these people real fast. I'm gonna hit the camera, turn the camera on and I'll, I'll be back, mm -hmm. you know? And, and it, it, yeah, that, that scene's just fantastic. But um, I think um, Do the Right Thing gave you everything, right? It was drama, there was comedy, there was, you know, sharp, biting wit, there was, you know, poignant social commentary. The reason why that movie's so good is that you didn't know what was coming. So it left you open for the messaging. This is what, this is why people get upset with the wokeness, right? Uh, when when right. you can put in, when you can put it into television and comedy or drama or whatever, because you don't know what you're getting, you have to be receptive to all of it. And it softens you up for the blow that's coming later. Yeah, I think that's the difference because, you know, Harlem Nights was billed as a comedy. Nobody expected anything really poignant to come out of it. I mean, you've got to think about 1989. The Black Renaissance, the, the history of Harlem, 
that was not in the public sphere. And so I want to give Eddie Murphy the credit, right? Because nobody was talking about the black Renaissance. Nobody was talking about the fine and upstanding people of Harlem, New York, mm-hmm. who were wearing coats and had cars and had to create a community and a thriving economy in the shadow of being blackballed from the economy of New York City. Right? It's a different story. And maybe telling that story at that time led to some vitriol or the willingness to discard it as a weird passion project or something. I've noticed this with a lot of comedians, with a lot of public personas as I study the craft. There's definitely a time when a lot of the greats give credence to the greats that were before them. And I think that this was Eddie Murphy doing that. Because, I mean, it's a laundry list of black performers who were all old at at this point, right? Della Reese, Red Fox, Robin Harris is in there. You know, like, there's all of these luminaries. And I think he was giving them time to shine and a nice way to make some residual money. We spoke to cinematographer and director of photography, Michelle Crenshaw, on the exact differences between these two films from a filmmaking perspective. You know, here you have Do the Right Thing that was like about six and a half million to produce. And Eddie Murphy, come on, he had 30 million. So you can't really compare because the budgets are so different. The storyline is so different. So how you get across the story itself is based on how much money you have. You have choices in who you choose to act. You have choices in locations, wardrobe, hair, makeup, and the crew itself the limitations of locations. That's why filmmaking is such a collaborative art form. And when you see those credits behind these movies, those are everybody getting paid. It's not like the little rascals at our gang in theater and you all come together, let's do this guys. You know, that only goes so far. So Spike Lee was a master of making films based on the budgets that he could work with or allowed to have and develop that aesthetic with that in relationship to the DP. First of all, you know, period pieces usually cost more because you have to get the wardrobe, you have to get production design, art direction. Then you're dealing with guns, any kind of, you know, special effects. That costs money. You've got all those comedians and stars, and they're at the top of their game. You got Rich Pryor. You got all you know, Red Fox. You got all of them, including Eddie. They're at the top of their game. And you can tell it's a big studio production. Spike at that time was still indie. You know, raising bonds, doing what he needed to do to tell his work. I mean, she like Gordon Tarks, Spike Lee really is the African-American indie filmmaker. 
of America. He's to me on the same caliber as uh, Woody Allen. To me, Spike Lee is what Woody Allen is to New York. Spike Lee is the black version of New York, you know? Even though his budgets might not allow him to be bigger aesthetically, only on smaller budgets. He probably gets bigger budgets now. That creates a different aesthetic. This is based on the amount of money you have or access to it. And that's what Do the Right Thing was talking about at that very moment 30 plus years ago. And of course, that narrative uh, with all of these wonderful characters being performed by all of these amazing performers, Ozzy, Rumpy, Bazion, Sam Jackson sitting in, sitting in that booth on, on that radio. I mean, we didn't know these people. Now it's easy now because, oh, because we're seeing Carlo and Bill Nutt and, and all, you know, it's so easy now. You know, Martin Lawrence are running around. But way back then, cultural brands, but yet they were all just being brilliant, representing people who, if, if you were black, it's like you knew these people. Rosie Perez. It's like you knew all of these people. It's, you know, it's like that's bugging out. It's like, it's just, it's like it even had names of people we knew mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, on, on this hot, 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 which is another brilliant thing. Said it on the hottest day of the year. The, the day that we all know anything can happen. Um, and, and, and then that culmination, you know, what it comes to uh, and, and, uh, and, and what happens with Bill's character. And how can we not think about staff when we think about George Floyd? Right. It's like it was prescient. It was prescient. It's less, it, if he was looking into the future. And, and in some ways, it's really sad that, you know, 30 plus years later, the thing that we, we could see as a possibility is, is just it's a thing that not only happened to George Gillard, but happens all the time, that in block. Can I talk to you for a second? What? Tina, who's your favorite basketball player? Magic Johnson. Who's your favorite movie star? Eddie Murphy. Who's your favorite rock star? Prince. You're a Prince Ross. Bruce. Prince. Bruce. You know, all you ever talk about is this and that. And all your favorite people are so-called It's different. Magic, Eddie, Prince. I'm not niggas. I mean, they're not black. I mean, let me explain myself. They're, they're not really black. I'm, I mean, they're black, but they're not really black. They're, they're more than black. It's, it's, it's different. It's different? Yeah, to me, it's, it's different. You know, deep down inside, I think you wish you were black. <laughs> You know, some people actually like Harlem Nights, right? I mean, Eddie wasn't Spike Lee, but he's undeniable, even in a film that isn't Oscar-worthy. So remember when Eddie Murphy was doing the promotion for Coming to America 2? And they, were, they, were, they showed an old clip of Eddie Murphy on Ar Arsenio Hall show. Mm -hmm. And he was talking to Arsenio Hall about his next project. Guys, how's Harlem Nights coming along? You're directing that. You you know, you came out real good in the movie. Arsenio's in the movie. Me, Richard Pryor, oh. Arsenio, Red Fox, Danny Aiello, Michael mm -hmm. Lerner, Jasmine Guy. Mm -hmm. You got a powerhouse cast, man. It looks good? Yeah, man. <laughs> I kill Arsenio in this movie. Don't tell him. Well, they gotta go see. No, not dead for real. <laughs> <laughs> it's very funny when you see it get <laughs>
he was all excited about it. So he was kind of giving us like some hints, but he didn't tell us what the project was about. And to me, that movie is like, the nostalgia is just like so much time has passed. Like, I just, like, it feels like it was yesterday. And I'm looking at Richard Pryor and he's looking, he doesn't even look old. You know, I'm looking at Eddie Murphy. He looks like, he looks so young. I'm looking at Stella Reese. You know, I mean, seeing all these people who, it was almost like watching life. Remember when in that section in life in the movie where you see just the people like disappear and you see it and then there was another Eddie Murphy movie, but it's like, I'm just, and I'm seeing all these like people and, and I was actually focused, more focused on the people in the movie than the actual story. I mean, I knew what the story was because I'd seen Hollow Nights a couple of times. And then so things made this certain the same lines made me laugh. And I just made me remember these wonderful, great, fantastic actors who were just gone. Like even like I said, even Charlie Murphy is is gone, right? And so it, it's just it was just it was such a slice of time in that space. The irony is that I also watched Boomerang this weekend. And it's just it's like it was just a slate of movies where Eddie Murphy was on top of the world. And you could see why he was on top of the world. And you could see how like funny and debonair and interesting that he was. Nineteen eighty nine is interesting because you can almost say that that was like that is a building block, and and it's a very and it's, and it's not that many building blocks in film. It was also at the height of the golden age of hip hop, which plays a part in the right thing. thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it's so you hear it, you're just like don't don't you know. That's why it was very like, you know, you see Rosie Perez and it's a very like in living color ish. And you could, but that was, that's what was going on at the time. And this is before he lived in color. And you can almost argue that hip hop inspired Harlem Nights, even though it was in the rolling 20s. But when you look at the haircuts, you look at the clothes, look at the way they were talking to each other, you didn't hear hip hop in it, but hip hop is not far away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You heard you heard its vibe. You heard its, its yeah. essence there, most certainly. Yeah, Spike Lee has done so much, like Gordon Parks, to change the playing field for African American filmmakers, actors, and people who worked in crew. Eddie Murphy is Eddie Murphy. He's part of a whole studio conglomerate. I'm not saying he's not talented. Of course he's talented. And he was able to bring, especially with Harlem Nights, all those comedians together in one story and give them a platform in such a way that no one else would. I knew it. I knew it. Knew what? I knew that girl the other night had it for me. Look what I just got in the mail. Dear Mr. Quick, I couldn't help but acknowledge the obvious electric attraction between the two of us. Huh? Perhaps we should have dinner and talk. Please respond. Evergreen 20304 signed truly Miss Dominique LaRue. See? That girl coming by here the other night didn't have nothing to do with that cop that came by your apartment. She made small bring in so she can meet me. She probably seen me up on the boulevard at the picture show and wanted to meet me ever since. Quick, I asked you not to mess with that woman. Sugar, she came after me. And besides, we don't even know if she's still down with Calhoun. At least I'm gonna do is find out. Dominique LaRue. Now, where did she get that French name? She's Creole. Oh, well, you don't want to mess around with one of them Creole women. As well as Spike Lee, he's opened the door for a lot of actors. And a lot of actors went on 
to be mainstream Hollywood once they were working with Spike Lee. And Ernest Dickerson made a point, even as cinematographers and director of photography, uh, to have other brothers shoot for him after Ernest moved on and women. He's very progressive. But, you know, Eddie, going back to Eddie Murphy, he's an artist, and we love him. He's a comedian, one of the greatest, but he does have support of Hollywood. And there's a difference aesthetic because of that. But I am happy when he did Coming to America 2. It was historic because... There were more African-Americans on set behind the scene than any other film in history. Come on. I'm back. Say it again. In this and I can, I know for a fact, I wish I worked on it, but I didn't. The majority of the camera crew was black. And that's huge. Jody Williams was the director of Photographer, his first major feature since coming from television. He did an excellent job out of Chicago. It was huge. And if you ever see a group photo of the cast and crew, it's monumental. And this is 2021. We can't talk about 1989's Do the Right Thing without talking about 1988's Coming to America. Spike had been working around the edges of indie Hollywood with She's Gotta Have It, School Days, some short films, and music videos. Eddie sets a film in Brooklyn, unlike his earlier affair, a film in its own universe, away from the white world, Coming to America was black. Blackity, black, black, black. And Coming to America made money. Once upon a time, in a faraway kingdom, lived a handsome prince. Why? Why can't I find my own wife? We've gone to a great deal of trouble to select for you a very fine wife. I want a woman that's going to arouse my intellect as well as my loins. Where will you find such a woman? In America. Known for such films as The Blues Brothers, American Werewolf in London, Animal House, and Trading Places, director-producer John Landis might have personally earned more on Coming to America than the whole budget of Do the Right Thing. Point. Do the Right Thing had a budget of $6 million, while Coming to America's budget, according to Wikipedia, was $36 million, with Eddie Murphy accounting for $8 million of that. In many ways, Lee is an upstart coming to the table with Hutzpah to direct his Brooklyn movie, almost in response to coming to America. Point of order, though. In She's Gotta Have It, Spike has his Mars Blackman running around wearing a Brooklyn cap crowned to his dome. So this wasn't the first or last glimpse into Spike's love affair with the borough. What about Nola Darling? What do you want to know? I thought she was a freak, you know, freaky dicky. You ask why I continue to see her? It looked like a real heart. I'm not crazy. Sex was death. 
Nola had the goods and she knew what to do. Look, Auburn wants freaks. We just don't want them for a wife. I can also see Eddie looking at an around-the-way kid like Spike, shaking up things in Hollywood without stifling his unique voice and point of view and saying, I recorded a number one song with Rick James. I want to party all the time. Now, I want to direct a movie too. And he calls all his friends to come and be in it. Meanwhile, Spike gets a case of the Mo Better Blues before getting his grand opus off the ground. Malcolm X. Set where? <laughs> in Harlem. Eddie steps out of the director's chair, never to return, deciding his best behind the camera role is producer, adding Boomerang, Vampire in Brooklyn, and The Nutty Professor to an output increasingly marketed to an African-American clientele while cashing the big checks for Another 48 Hours, The Distinguished Gentleman, and Beverly Hills Cop 3. Another 48 Hours was fun-ish, but his heart didn't really seem to be in the other two. Spike Lee and Ernest Dickerson part ways after Malcolm X as Dickerson steps into the director's chair and Spike secures bigger budgets with inconsistent results. Crooklyn begets Clockers, which begets Girl 6, which begets Get on the Bus. The critically acclaimed underperforming He Got Game begets the mixed-reviewed underperformance of Summer of Sam. But you know what? The only thing we proved with this whole exercise is that it's not really fair to compare Harlem Nights to do the right thing. Well, it's not fair to compare most movies to do the right thing. This is true. That's it for this episode of the Class of 1989. Tune in next week for episode three, Commercial Race Theater. The Class of 1989 is produced by Len Webb, Vincent Williams, and Mo Poplar. Written by Len Webb, Vincent Williams, and Mo Poplar. Edited by Len Webb with mixing and mastering by Chris Bonello. Production help from Jordan Aaron. Marketing by Joni Deutsch, Matt Keeley, and Annabella Pena. Music by Alexa Gold. Art by Tom Grillo. Special thanks to Dan Christo. Executive produced by Jeff Umbro and the Podglomerate. Until next time, he's Vincent, I'm Len, and in parting, we say, we'll see you when it's time to meet again. <laughs>